Hello and welcome to Lit, a podcast for combating burnout. I'm your host, Kate Newberg, and this is episode 13, and it's called Living from the Inside Out. I want to start today with a definition of burnout that I came across um, that I may have mentioned on here before, but I want to really dig into it today. And uh, this definition comes from Dr. Maslach and uh, Dr. Michael Leiter, who are researchers in the realm of burnout. Actually, Dr. Maslach has a whole index, um, a burnout index. It's really interesting. It's an instrument you can use to kind of, she uses it to kind of measure burnout. And it's been around for, I think, 20 years or so. Um, so it's really interesting, maybe even longer than 20 years. Um, so it's really interesting, and she's definitely an expert on this. She's a psychologist who's an expert on this. And um, they have this really cool definition that I think has even more layers to it than um, than they maybe even intended when they wrote it. So um, I think there's a lot to peel back. So the definition is of burnout, as they call it, is the, quote, the index of dislocation between what people are and what they have to do. I'm going to say that one more time because that's this is going to be a really important definition for this podcast. Um, they say burnout is, quote, the index of dislocation between what people are and what they have to do. Now, I think most people interpret this on kind of a surface level um, where they say, well, this is kind of what your role is versus what you thought you were signing up for. So uh, I think in an article I read recently, an example was a professor who said that, you know, he was really trained as a researcher, um, but when he took on a tenure track position, uh, the majority of his duties had nothing to do with research. It was sitting on committees, it was grading papers, it was teaching, which, Side note, I've always found really interesting that we put professors who are leaders in their field in front of um, a classroom without, in a lot, a lot of times without any real uh, training on how to be a teacher. And um, that's, ex that's extremely stressful. I mean, it's already stressful, even if you have training. And then if, um, if all you know is, uh, for instance, my, si my sister is a, is a physics, is an astrophysicist, um, and she's an expert in her, like a leader in her field in physics. Um, and she recently got a tenure track position and now she's teaching physics to undergrads and she's this brilliant woman. And she's calling me and saying, um, I'm not really sure how to do this. <laughs> uh, so it, it is really interesting. So on, on a surface level, right. You can look at this. Um, you can look at this definition and say, okay, this, this dislocation, it's almost this, this feeling of like disorientation around uh, what you thought you were getting yourself into and what it is that you're actually doing on the day-to-day -day, um, in your job. And I believe, I really believe a lot of people um, come across this because when you're applying for a job, you have a job description um, and then you have kind of your own hopes and dreams for the job. And what seems to happen often is that people come in and once they find out what the job is really like, they say, oh, wow, I didn't realize it would be 
this much paper pushing or this much administrative work or um, this isn't really what I thought I was getting myself into. So there is that. Um, I actually have a, a story about that in, in my personal experience. I was in a job and um, uh, this yoga studio nearby and um, every once in a while I would take a lunch hour and go do noon yoga. And uh, I remember mentioning that once. So we had like an open office and I was talking to someone and I mentioned it, that I had gone to yoga that day. And my, my boss pulled me aside later and was like, uh, I, I really don't think you should be talking about that. She was like, she's like, people are going to think you don't have enough to do around here. And I remember, I remember thinking how absurd that was thinking like, um, that, and I'll go into this later on in this podcast, but the idea that like pretending to be busy was something that I would have to do in a, in a job. And so, um, so this index of dislocation has a very surface level, very practical, um, application to our lives. Uh, but I think that there's also a deep level to it. And I think that there's a, uh, that there are some layers that we can peel back. And if we look at the definition, it says this, this index of dislocation is between what they say is what people are and what they have to do. And I'm not sure if they totally intended that to, to resonate at that deep level of being, but that is how I'm interpreting it. And I'm seeing this as this dislocation isn't just like what your job title is, but it's, it's what you are and who you are as a human being. And the way I interpreted this was that a lot of jobs out there with the way they're set up, they cause us to be in exile from ourselves. That there's this dislocation. And, and if you think about the word dislocation, it means you're out of location. You're disoriented. You're in exile. And so this exile, this, this, these jobs, they drive a wedge between who you are as a human being and the actions that you're performing every day. And, uh, and I think that's really profound if we think about it. Because what that does is it brings burnout to the level that I've always seen it as, which is uh, the level of the spiritual, uh, the level of the existential. We are, uh, we are human beings with inner drives, inner purpose, and inner, uh, an inner identity. And all of these things are, um, we feel separated or exiled from that in our daily lives on the job. So I think that's a really profound definition of burnout. And I want to talk about the way that, uh, that, that burnout is, is present at the level of an organization. So we've talked a lot. Um, and I, and I mentioned my reasoning for that. We talked a lot about burnout, um, at the individual level, but I really want to dive into today on the, the level of the organization and what a definition like this means when we are talking about a collective. 
of people, which is any company, any organization, any industry, um, that's a collective. So um, one example I like to use is, so often companies or organizations, they'll have, they'll have values, like a set of values that they, that they claim is company-wide or that they, they adhere to, right? Um, and I don't know about all you guys, but most of the time uh, when I see those values on the wall, it, it just kind of becomes like background, like a background noise, or it just becomes like a piece of uh, wall space. Like they just, just takes up space on the wall. Um, but I'd like to, I like to bring up uh, here. There's a company out there that has these values, uh, which I think are really good. So um, the values that they hold as a company are communication, respect, integrity, and excellence. And uh, who's going to argue with that, right? Those are those are pretty powerful values to hold as a company. Uh, do you know whose values those are? Those are Enron's. <laughs> yeah. So communication, respect, integrity, and uh, and excellence. Uh, and, and all of this is just to say that it's really easy for any organization to decide on some values, maybe sit in a few committees around it, maybe get some stakeholders involved and print up a bunch of posters and put them on the wall and maybe even do a little like norming thing around them before meetings, maybe even not. I mean, even that would be a step in the right direction, but it's so easy to just pay lip service to these things. And it looks good on your PR materials and it looks good when you're trying to get funding. Maybe you're a nonprofit and you're trying to get funding, right? And you have these these uh, these values that you say you adhere to, but so often these really are just um, just there for decoration. And um, and one of the reasons I started doing what I'm doing, I started my business, um, and I started doing the research I was doing and the writing I'm doing and this podcast is because I personally am driven nuts by this. Um, by this dislocation, right? This dislocation between what people say they are and what they actually do. Um, and I think that that dislocation within a, within an organization uh, contributes massively to the amount of burnout experienced by their employees uh, because they feel really deeply that dis that disconnection between what the company says it values and what it's actually doing. And when that happens, they think, well, there's nothing here to lean on. There's nothing here um, that I can trust. There's, if, if, they're, if they can't do that, you know, what else are they going to back out on? Or what else are they just saying? You know, and, and it really undermines, um, when companies do that, it really undermines the kind of trust and respect that employees have for that company. And so I want to talk a little bit today about uh, a tool I like to use for helping kind of create a light bulb moment for companies when they're doing these things. And um, it's something I call backwards analysis. And I think I mentioned it a few podcasts ago, and I got really excited about doing a whole podcast around it. So um, the, the idea of backwards analysis is that you you pretend you walk into an organization or any sort of collective 
and you walk in with the with a completely open non-judgment um mindset of non-judgment like you like you're seeing this place for the first time sometimes you are sometimes you're not um and what i do is i work backwards from what i see the structures the practices um the culture the interactions between employees even things like the break room you know like like no detail uh no i no detail miss i don't miss any detail with something like this because as far as i'm concerned if you're claiming to live by some value by values then you're claiming to live by those values inside and out which is where the title of this podcast came from living from the inside out. So, um, if you say that you respect communication like Enron did, but I see that, uh, there's like, I, I do focus groups and I see that like 30% of your employees have absolutely no idea, um, what the direction of the company is or what their roles even are supposed to entail. Then I'm going to say, yeah, that's a value you might hold, but you need to do some work on actually, um, manifesting that value in this company. So uh, one example I like to use and, and the where I actually got this idea from once was I was observing a teacher and and let me preface this by saying that the kind of work I'm doing and this this backwards analysis thing, um, this is this can bring up some really, really difficult conversations. And um, and I just always caution people if we're gonna enter into like a backwards analysis, um, kind of mode, then you're going to have to be really vulnerable and you're going to have to be willing to let your, your defenses down, uh, because it's really easy to get defensive when, when, and to make excuses, uh, you know, when, when the results come in and, uh, and, and the way I see it is, um, excuses, for these things don't actually change the way it's manifesting. What I care about in the backwards analysis is where does the rubber actually meet the road, um, so to speak? Like what what is actually on the ground happening in this company, right? Um, not like where cerebrally, like what would we like to be happening, but what is actually happening? And I got that idea from the classroom because really we we can spend um and i've done this spent years creating curriculum but if the if um if it doesn't get enacted then it's just this thing floating around in the ether right if the students aren't actually getting their hands on it then uh the curriculum it doesn't matter how much work we put into it right so same thing with this idea so um quick story about a classroom um i i went into to do an observation with the teacher who wanted some help with his practice and um, I came in pretending like I had no idea. I had never met the. I came in kind of as if I was an alien that had touched down and had never seen Earth before, and had never seen school before, and had never seen this classroom before. So total beginner mindset. Um, and after watching a class period or a few class periods, um, this is what I told him. I said, uh, "Here's what I here's what I think you value in your classroom." I said, "It seems like." Uh, you you believe that some students should get preferential treatment. And of course, all these things I had data for, observation points, um, you know, detailed descriptions. I wasn't just making this up. Uh, but, you know, from that specific data point, I I, I got that from the fact that he'd, he'd had a bunch of different groups 
Um, and some groups got more attention and more time than others. It was just, um, lots of things. So it's like, if they asked like, well, where did you get that from? I would have, um, I would have data to back it up, but, but here's, here's, um, here's what I said. I said some, it seems like some students, you believe some students should get preferential treatment. Uh, anything unplanned or discovery based is dangerous. And I got that because he had kind of, it, it was a lab that I watched him do and he pretty much. In fact, he did. He went through the entire lab, including all of the lab results, um, before he even let the students try it. So there was no discovery in that. It was like he wanted like his most his thing that he wanted to make sure happened was that like I'm not sure that just everyone did it right, I guess. Um, you know, so so uh anything unplanned or discovery based is dangerous and um Advocating for your needs is not allowed. Uh, he would get frustrated if students questioned him or asked for things. Essentially, the values I came up with were compliance, quiet, correct answers, and um, making him feel good about his lessons. Because <laughs> if students decided not to be engaged uh, in the lesson because they found it uninteresting or whatnot, uh, they would get punished. So, um, but the students that that followed directions that complied. Uh, they were rewarded. So, um, so when we did that backwards analysis and you compared those quote unquote values, compliance, quiet, correct answers to what he claimed to value as a teacher, which was student engagement, student independence, student discovery, we could see this really serious disconnect between the ways he was conducting his lessons. Um, and the type of impact he was, he was having on the students. And so we did a lot of work on, re and, and I mean, that's hard to, that's really hard to hear, right. As a, especially as a, a teacher who is, um, uh, who really loves, he really loves his students. Like this is a good teacher who loves his students. Right. Um, this isn't, this is, this is a good disclaimer. He wasn't just some like, you know, quote unquote, I hate to call, but he was, he was a dedicated, involved, loving teacher, right? And, um, and it's, I think it's shocking when we start to look into these things to see, um, how rampant this type of thing really is and not, you know, and, and I'm just using the classroom as an example right now, because there, this is, this is everywhere. So I, I'm going to transition out talking about an actual company that I worked for. Um, and, and I'm actually going to talk about the one where that I mentioned earlier, where I took a lunch break to do yoga and my boss was like, you can't tell anyone about that. So, um, there, and there was another thing that happened in that company. So I'm transitioning now to talk about this larger than a classroom, like on a company level, I feel like the classroom is a really good encapsulated way to talk about this stuff. Um, but now if we're talking company wide, there was another, um, in addition to that yoga example where I wasn't supposed to do yoga on my lunch break uh, because I, it looked like I just didn't have enough to do and wasn't very important, um, <laughs> which I still laugh at, um, which, and honestly, she was probably right. Like, I probably didn't have enough to do and I definitely wasn't very important. And like, um, I would have really liked to change that. And actually, that that's a good segue into this part of the conversation, which is, I actually sat down with my boss and had a conversation with her about what my strengths were. Cause I was like, I can offer so much more than what they're, um, than what they're doing with me than what, than what I'm allowed to do here. 
Um, and I have a lot of strengths to offer here. Um, and I, and I, and I need to advocate for myself because I don't want to be in a company where, uh, where I, I have to pretend to look busy just to, uh, for people to think that I'm important or whatever. So, so I sat down with her and I had a conversation about, um, what, what I saw my strengths were, how I wanted to expand my role, how I wanted to expand my impact and what I would need from her to do that. And the outcome of that conversation was she laughed. Actually, she didn't even really laugh. She actually, she seemed to get really kind of frustrated and offended. And she said, um, she said, well, what makes you think that, uh, you should, that you should be using your strengths every single day? She was like, I would say, 15% 15% of my job is actually using my strengths and the rest of it is just stuff I don't like to do, but I have to do it. <laughs> and she shut that down hard, that conversation. She was just like, ah, uh, yeah, no. Um, I, and I couldn't tell if like part of her was, was, uh, was threatened. Right. Or part of her thought that I was just like, that I had a big ego or something. And I was like, look at all this stuff I can do. And, and, you know, but, and, and I think that's side note that is, and it's something I talked about with conflict in the episode on conflict. But um, when you start to advocate for yourself, people, people will interpret that in all sorts of ways. Either you have an ego or you're being selfish or um, you're trying to, you know, beat them at some sort of internal competition they have going that's all their problem right that's not your problem uh and so when i sorry my cat wants to be let in so sorry real world um podcast interruption my cat he's got three legs his name is murphy and now he's joining us so so anyway um okay where was i so yeah um that was a side note about self-advocacy you got to do it even if people don't understand so, um, the, 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 the irony is right. The values that this company said they espoused were things like innovation, um, you know, uh, autonomy, a sense of adventure, <laughs> things like that, uh, which I think are all great values. And actually I think they did an in-depth like focus group research study to get these values and then they just got hung on a wall right or stuck in a poster for PR or hiring purposes and uh because if I was to um do my backwards analysis and talk about what I believed this company actually valued I would say it was conformity compliance uh agreeing with the leaders, no matter what it is that they say. I remember once I, I, uh, I asked some probing questions about a, a new initiative they were unveiling, and I had someone pull me aside and say, "If you want to advance in this company, you're not going to be asking questions like that." And I remember thinking, "So much for this sense of adventure." <laughs> um, but yeah, so so things like conformity, compliance, agreeing with leaders, that kind of thing. Uh, Those were the types of values where if I was going to work backwards, I would say this is actually what they seem to value because this is what they live by and this is how they operate. So um, the the point of this is to talk about how um, it's not enough, right, to just claim that you have values, but to 
But if you're going to go out and say that and do that, you need to be implementing them and living by them with integrity, at least, at least trying to, right? <laughs> at least trying to, not just hanging them on a wall somewhere. Because um, not everyone's going to be perfect, right? But, um, but at least try. So it got me thinking about, like, I've got all these negative examples, but what would a company look like that actually had these types of values, that actually lived by these values, that actually organized themselves around these values? Um, and I would think a lot about, like, uh, well, a company that, a, a, the type of company that I would want to work for and the type of company that I'm working to create is, a company that values autonomy. And what that could look like is that both teams and individuals have problem solving power and um, are trusted to uh, take care of things. And, and if, if whenever possible, they take care of uh, whatever is in their purview. And then if, if they need help, they reach out for help. And there's no stigma associated with reaching out for help, but there's, but they have a lot of autonomy to do the things that, uh, that they need to do to get their job done and to solve their problems. So autonomy, um, open channels of communication, which goes along with the, uh, like a value of what would I say absence of hierarchy of worth. Um, you know, in a school district, we have, uh, and, and I would say probably any company is there's this like a hierarchy of worth, right? And that's reflected both in what you make, uh, at, you know, what kind of money you make, but also like how people treat you. And I think um, I, I, I like to think of a company as just being a collection of roles and they're all necessary or they should be uh, necessary for the functioning of the company or the organization. So like if you're in a school district, I believe that like a bus driver or a maintenance person uh, should have, they, they are experts in their field and they need to have a say in, um, and, and there's no, I guess what I'm saying is there's no, there's no hierarchy of worth, right? Like we know that the, the maintenance person is just as valuable as the superintendent, if not more so. I've seen some school districts where the maintenance person probably has more <laughs> critical day-to-day -day responsibility than the superintendent. Um, and so all, all that is to say that, that when, again, when we talk about open channels of communication, it means that uh, we need to respect that everyone in the organization is an expert um, in, in his or her field. And, and we need to really um, bring those voices and ideas forward and create uh, real channels for that. Uh, I would... Uh, a company that welcomes innovation, even if, or especially if it's disruptive, right? If we're doing something that's not working, uh, let's change it. You know, let's be flexible. Let's be adaptive. Let's make sure that our, that we're staying focused on our, and this is another one, clear expectations and a clear vision, right? That we're staying focused on our clear expectations, our clear vision. Um, and that if it means that there's things that need to change, even if they're big things, uh, but that's going to make us more, um, that's going to make us more better, a more better, <laughs> a more better company or organization, then let's embrace that and go for it. Uh, so, wow, uh, man, I have two minutes left to finish this up. So uh, I want to say like, you can also bring this back down to the level of life real quick. So who, one way to do this is you don't always have the power to change a whole company, although I'm work, I'm working on that. And I think we are all, uh, we all have a lot more power than we think. But 
you can think about this type of thing in, uh, in the context of just your life, right? What do you value in your life? And if you did backwards analysis on your life, what, what would come out that you value versus what you say you value? So if you say you value, um, self-care, but you're noticing that you're packing a thousand things into every single one of your days. Uh, my guess is that there are ways to, um, there, there are ways that you can organize your life so that you really can bring out self-care or, uh, personally, I know my days have gotten a lot slower, um, since I started valuing self-care and I really like it. I will not pack that much into a day anymore. And it leaves so much more time for stillness and reflection and um, I'm so much happier now than when I was running around like a crazy person <laughs> trying to get all this stuff done. And when I started and when and and the idea of that is if you're doing backwards analysis, you could say, well, the value, my value is that my worth is based on what I can produce in a day. Right. And if someone smacks that in front of you in your right in your face, you say, wait a minute, that's not what I value. Um, it can be really a really powerful wake up call. Or if you are. um if you say you value relationship, but the only time you interact with your partner is to discuss like practical household matters, then maybe you need to spend more intentional time together where you promise to be fully present and not worried about the day-to-day, um, you know, duties of, of living in a partnership of where you can just let go and relax and love each other. And you schedule that, you know, you make sure that that's something you prioritize. So um, so this is all the way this backwards analysis is a way to find your way back to the self. And, um, and if you do that on a personal level, I promise you, it's going to begin to seep into the, into what you do on the job. So, okay. This was another episode of lit episode 13 living from the inside out. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week.